Hi, it's G3. And now that the Fed has finally hiked rates, which surprised precisely nobody on the planet, we should expect to see a sea of prognosticators turn their attention to what the future holds for FOMC policy. That's why I'm happy to be speaking to Weiss's Lundy Wright today. Lundy has been watching the Fed for a long time and brings a perspective and wisdom to the table that few others have. He is also a card counter, which I find fitting, given that he knows how to separate the signal from the noise and the numbers from motion. So enjoy this episode, check out important disclosures at the end, and feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions or comments. You could also deal us an ace by leaving a review. And with that, welcome. Lundy, happy St. Patrick's Day. Oh, thank you very much. It is great to be speaking with you now that the Fed meeting is behind us. And I think it affords us an opportunity to look at some of the structural forces at work, which will play into future decisions that the Fed is going to have to make. But before we get to this main topic, I did want to first ask you, was there anything said at the Fed press conference in terms of tone, balance sheet plans, forward guidance, or anything else that surprised you? Um, not truly surprising. They were more hawkish than what most people had expected in terms of how many times they're going to tighten, what their intentions are, their determination to kneecap inflation. They became, after just six months ago, they had no intention of tightening as far as what was communicated. Three months ago, they had already started to shift and pull away from the easing process. And now we're in full tightening mode. And so they've pretty much committed themselves to seven tightenings this year or the equivalent of, if it's not seven independent tightenings, it could be a move of 50 and then six tightenings, but some of them 50 and stuff like that. Those options are all available to them, but they intend fully to get rates up to close to one and three quarters, 2% within a year's time. So that has been made pretty clear. And I think that they're working hard, you know, that inflation is frightening them. And so they're on a path now to make sure that the markets believe that they are completely serious about getting rid of inflation and stopping inflation from being a problem. They provided clarity to the market. The market did not have clarity. That said, if you look at the dots, there's still an incredible amount of dispersion in the future as to what even Fed people expect, but that's after this year. For this year, it's pretty clear. Okay, well, let's talk about that dispersion and how you're looking at things and where you are going to be focusing in on moving forward. One topic that I know you have talked about with me and, and others, I'm sure, is deglobalization. This idea that the world is turning away from big sweeping free trade agreements. How does protectionism complicate the Fed's job in, in the future, in your view? It complicates the Fed's job in a lot of ways. One of the primary ways is the Fed uses a lot of history, a lot of models to evaluate how they should behave in today's environment. Globalization has been a part of mankind forever, probably since the, you know, it's the start of human history. But at the same time, in the last four or five, six decades, it has been accelerating. And every nation has specialized. We get to enjoy bananas 
and other people get to enjoy our technology because of free trade, just as a like, silly example. But now with deglobalization, with what's happening, it alters the Fed's history for them to look forward. So what they've focused on historically to say, now we expect this to happen based on what we know has happened in the past and how we've reacted, those models are gonna be less certain. And so it's gonna increase their uncertainty and the market's uncertainty in them, I think. And in terms of what the calculus will be though for the Fed, do you think this is good for growth in nominal wages? real wages? Or how do you sort of view this trend, though, as sort of impacting or complicating the decisions that the Fed is going to have to make? Well, nominal for sure. But there's been some steps before this. All right. So Trump, when he got in, he saw unfairness in the way that globalization and and trade deals had evolved. And so he threw up tariffs and and then other people did it in retaliation or in kind. But it shined a light on some of the evolutionary inequities of trade deals. Of course, he stumbled through it and such in his own manner, but it's still, he wasn't wrong in terms of what he was trying to get at. So at that point, with tariffs and such, some deglobalization started. Some people started to think we need to onshore some of our industries in the event this goes, this moves, and this changes and such. So the Fed had some inkling for the last six years or so, as has everyone else, about what may be coming. Then when COVID shut down everything two years ago, everybody, free trade stopped, just stopped completely. And the way it reopened with each nation reopening differently and having different rules is similar, almost identical in a way to just the issues that we had within the United States, as some states remained open, other states closed and such. So with all of that, that's a ton of uncertainty for the Fed to imagine. And I think what they've done has basically narrowed all that uncertainty and said, we're focused on inflation. We're going to get rid of inflation first because all these other things are just very difficult to model or understand. But we do understand inflation. So let's shoot at that. And that's where their attention is. How that will impact in wages, headline inflation, core inflation, and such is going to be something that they're learning as they go. And because we haven't had inflation, real inflation in the United States for decades. Well, I'm glad you mentioned headline inflation and its relationship with core. As you will recall, we had a great conversation recently where you talked about the difference between headline and core, which of course strips out food and energy prices. In recent years, of course, the distinction between the two numbers hasn't been a major cause celebra because as you said, we haven't had much inflation. And obviously you fast forward to the present and we have a situation where energy and food prices could be even stickier than core. So how does this complicate the Fed's job? And when you say the Fed is dedicated to attacking inflation, I'm just interested in knowing, well, which inflation? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because inflation is in many ways a point of view discussion. If you're a company who owns assets that benefit from inflation, you are going to have a very different point of view than if you're a consumer who is being crimped, squeezed by inflation. And so a lot of companies who are measured in nominal terms, my revenues were X. And for that reason, people say, oh, the company's doing just fine. Their earnings are going up. Their earnings are going up 
in nominal terms, but in real terms is where the consumer lives. And so when the consumer says, oh, my wages went up by 5%, but my costs went up by 10%, they are getting squeezed. So for inflation, it's very much of a point of view exercise and the consumer getting squeezed in the end is more important. It might not be more important for the markets today, but in the end for what the Fed will do, it, they will focus more on the consumer getting squeezed. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. The Fed's mandate isn't to prevent consumers from feeling squeezed. It's price stability and full employment. So how does that factor into what the Fed's job is supposed to be? Yeah, that's good, because the Fed doesn't want high inflation, because high inflation is greater uncertainty going forward, just as a general standard. If high inflation results, and this is a, a loop, if you will, if it results in less purchasing by consumers, if consumers start to pull back, then companies start to get hurt. And so then we start to have greater unemployment and so on. And so those connections along the way, they're all interconnected, but in unusual timelines. But the Fed, for that reason, wants to be stable. They want certainty when you have greater certainty, companies can plan better for the future. Consumers can plan better for the future. And so the clarity that I said at the beginning that the Fed provided to the market yesterday, in a way, does help everyone plan. And in part, that may be why the long end of the curve started to rally, even though there's great inflation in front of us. By providing clarity, investors feel more comfortable in taking a stand. Companies plan, they may expand businesses because they know what to expect. Consumers who also feel the squeeze along the way can at least have some comfort that relief is coming. And so all of it is interrelated. Just to be clear though, if the Fed manages to get core under control, but headline is still going up. It's tough. It's tough. So the Fed will not have feed them. I don't know if it's from a political standpoint or whatever. They would not be deemed to be doing their job, even though according to their mandate, they would be in fact doing their job. Right. Tightening doesn't make wheat grow faster. Tightening actually slows the economy and in theory slows demand, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have more to eat that you can afford today. So it is one of those things that it should mean it over time. It should help for the next 20 years or 10 years or five years. But for this year, it's not making the price of food come down just because they tightened. You're not less hungry because the right. Fed tightened. I hate to rely on the cliche, but is it true that the, you know, insofar as uh, commodity prices are concerned, the cure for high prices are high prices? For some products, for sure, because there's substitutability or there's believed to be substitutability. So for energy, if oil goes to $300, we will finally get the breakthroughs in alternatives for the mass scale that because there'll be so much incentive to do it. Okay, but there's a lot of pain along the way. So I could say that if the price of food triples, just for argument's sake, that will create new farming technology that will and new planting technologies that will allow everyone to eat more and have more abundance. Okay, but there's a lot of hunger along the way. Since those along the way moments, we don't know if are they like 20 years? <laughs> you know, it's gonna be a skinny 20 years if that's the case. So those types of things are true that higher prices force change, but 
higher prices exact a toll along the way. Gotcha. Very interesting. All right. Well, listen, I want to conclude with a discussion of how you have used blackjack in how you trade and analyze the Fed. But before we do, I first want to ask you about housing. Okay. We had a recent conversation where you talked about how Americans have seen their net worth rise because of the equity in their homes. But you've also said that many of those Americans are on their way to being house poor. Can you elaborate on that? There's a lot of wealth creation from housing. There's been wealth creation from the stock market rally and housing going up. That assumes you own a house. Also, it assumes that you bought your house with the ability to own the house, the expenses of the house along the way. So if you bought your house in the last couple of years, you are feeling flush with what your house wealth has done. But that doesn't mean that your monthly paychecks or your income is now able to cover increased utilities, increased maintenance costs, increased common fees and HOA fees, and increased taxes. And they've all gone up. So the cost of owning a home is absolutely higher And even though your wealth is higher, you have been squeezed relative to what your expectations were when you bought that house. So now you're forced with the decision of sell the house outright just to get the equity out, get a line of credit, refinance or whatever. Those options to use your house as an ATM still exist, but they were far easier to extract money out of your house back in what led to the housing crisis. Now it's a more onerous process, and people might not want to take on debt at higher interest payments now. They might not want to take on some more debt. They may not qualify to take on debt at this point either. So even though the employment situation is in a place where most people would qualify, I think there's always some inertia to do that too. I like my 2% mortgage. I don't want a 4% mortgage, even if it frees up cash. There is a squeeze that's going on, and it's not the dominant factor, but it's another log on the fire of squeezes that the consumer is feeling right now with inflation. It sounds like what you're saying is this is not a a major factor that will figure into how the Fed looks at things in the next meeting or two, but something you're keeping your eye on for longer term. All you need is for a little downturn in housing. We had a 10% downturn in the stock market. I'm not saying this will happen, but let's just say we had a 10% downturn in housing your costs don't go down with it. Gotcha. Excellent point. All right. Well, listen, in preparing for today, I was talking to Jordy and he mentioned that Lundy is a card counter. And when he said that, my first thought was, is that legal? Are we allowed to say that you are in fact a blackjack card counter? Yes, it's completely legal. And you absolutely are. You're playing by the house rules and you're just playing the game well. But the casinos typically throw people out when they discover that they're card counting, right? They do. And there's a lot of good stories around it for that reason, because you're you know, running from the authorities. But the authorities are just pit bosses and, and such, and they will throw you out. And so you come up with ways to avoid being thrown out, like wearing disguises and such. So it, it's an interesting story, but it is completely legal to do, and it's been glamorized in movies and such. I understood. Well, just as Jordy has talked about how going to the horse races when he was young helped him develop his framework for trading and investing, how has your background 
helped you both in terms of trading. And here we are talking about the Fed today. How has that influenced the way you go about doing your job? It's helped me take emotion out of trading. And let me start by saying there's a very fine line between gambling and risk taking. If I do something a million times with a process, the same process, and I make money to do it once, I might make money or lose money. If I do something a million times with whatever process, I'm losing money. Well, to do it once, I might make money or lose money. But the difference between the two is one is risk and one is gambling. So if I know I'm going to lose over the course of a million times, but I keep doing it, I'm just simply gambling. Blackjack is risk. Trading is risk. And a lot of successful traders are very good risk management people. And what Blackjack has helped me do is you have a system. You have a system that you believe in. So I don't have a system like Blackjack for trading, but the way, the process in which I come to my foundational thoughts and the way that I question myself and update those foundational thoughts on a minute-to-minute and daily basis, that is a process that I learned early, I've come to rely on, and it helps take emotion out. Because even in Blackjack, where you know you're going to win if you play a million hands, there's been times after 40 hours, I'm down $40,000 and it's, no, oh, geez, this, who wrote these books, the casino? And then who developed this model? In trading, the same is true. You, you have a process that works over time, but there's plenty of times during that, you're down a fair amount of money. And then it's easy to get emotional and try to stray from the process. But the more you stick to it and the more you do your homework and, and keep on questioning and reevaluating your foundational thoughts and then move forward, the more likely you are you're going to win over time. So not to push the metaphor too far. Well, maybe I will. I don't know if the Fed is the pit boss or the dealer, but it sounds like on any given hand, if you have a core point of view, a core system on how to trade around what you think the Fed is going to do in the long run, your view is it will hopefully be right and, and you'll do well. Yeah. And the Fed wants me to stay at the tables. The Fed is not trying to chase me away from the tables. Right. Excellent. Well, on that note, Lundy, thank you so much. I look forward to having many more discussions of this type as future Fed meetings arise. Really appreciate it. Great talking to you, too. Thanks a lot for having me. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.